Good morning, church. Great to be with you this morning. And if you're joining us online, welcome to the weekly worship gathering of Marymount Community Church. We're glad you're with us. And uh, today we are continuing in our series uh, called Astonished, and we're talking about the omnipotent God today. So I'm going to lead into this morning's service with a reading from Psalm 145, the first seven verses. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, Lord, we're in awe of you this morning. We agree with King David, Lord, that you are powerful, omnipotent. But we also see, Lord, that you are good and that every use of your power is good and that makes you great. And we honor you and praise you this morning and we offer this time of worship to you for your glory and we do that in the mighty name of Jesus and the assembled church agreed and said, Amen. Amen. Well, listen, good morning. I want to start with some great news. Uh, our co-senior pastor, Jamie Moore, is publishing his first book today. It's going today. Amen? Now, we're in a series on the uh, astonishing God, and I can't think of a better resource to help you dive deeper into this astonishing God. And the title of the book is Friendship with God. And there you will see Jamie's heart for the Lord, but you will also see some great biblical exposition and some super practical, spirit-led uh, counsel into how you can grow in your intimacy with God. So there's a book, there's a workbook, and what I recommend you do is uh, download it on Kindle. It's 99 cents. And uh, then let's leave a review and let's help our brother launch this book uh, for the glory of Jesus and for the uh, encouragement of the church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well done, Jamie. Awesome. Uh, now, we are going to continue in our celebration of Black History Month, and we've been honoring uh, uh, historical past black history makers and present black history makers. I want to draw your attention to uh, a present black history maker that uh, was a part of our congregation and has now moved to the west side and involved in a church on the other side of town called Bridgestone Community, Bridgetown Community Church. So Chanel Stevens uh, is a daughter of the king. She's a wife. Uh, she's a mom. And she's a leader. And over there at Bridgetown Community Church, she has... Uh, uh, introduced the prayer canopy and is leading the ministry of the prayer canopy over there. 
Uh, there's a picture of her and her family. And um, yeah, uh, she's also a champion for life. And uh, she came up with the Black Lives Are Valued, uh, which for me, and I hope for many of us, just does such a better job than um, uh, a lot of the slogans out there in describing how God sees our African-American brothers and sisters and how we see them. And then she's involved with Queen's Village, which is uh, uh, a ministry on the other side of town that's devoted to reducing um, the high rates of African-American infant mortality. So uh, Chanel, uh, I know you couldn't be here this morning, but you're watching. We want you to know we see you and we're incredibly encouraged by your life and your witness and we want you to keep pressing on. And I'm going to pray for you now. Father, uh, we join together in uh, blessing Chanel and her family. We thank you for her efforts uh, to bring about uh, your kingdom uh, in very specific and practical ways uh, as she leads and loves uh, from her home base. And we bless uh, Bridgetown Church of Christ and her ministry there. For your glory, Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, well, um, we've got one more thing I want to do this morning as we close out Black History Month. I want to look back at some, someone in the past who did an amazing job, and I've got a little video here for you to watch uh, about Hank Aaron. It's springtime, it's baseball season around the corner, which also means it's resurrection life around the corner. Uh, arguably one of our omnipotence God's greatest feats. So let's watch this video together. As a 20-year-old rookie with the 1954 Milwaukee Braves, Henry Louis Aaron batted 280 and posted an OPS under 800. For the rest of his Braves career, Aaron never had an OPS under 832. In fact, for 17 of the next 19 seasons with Milwaukee and later Atlanta, his OPS was over 900. And in five of those seasons, it topped 1,000. In 1957, Aaron won the National League MVP award and led Milwaukee to its first World Series appearance, an appearance assured by his pennant-clinching home run against the Cardinals at County Stadium on September 23rd. It's a home run! The Braves are the champions of the National League! Nothing new for Henry. Throughout his career, he only got better when the moments got bigger. With runners in scoring position, he hit 324 with an OPS of close to 1,000 for his career. And in situations where the game was deemed late and close, Henry batted 318 and his OPS was 983. In that 1957 World Series against the Yankees, Henry batted 393 with three home runs as the Braves won the series in seven games. All told, Hank Aaron appeared in only three postseason series the 57 and 58 World Series against the Yankees, and the 1969 NLCS against the Mets. 69 total at-bats, in which Aaron slugged 710, the highest for any National Leaguer, with at least 60 postseason at-bats. As it happened, more than a quarter of Henry's postseason at-bats came against Hall of Famers Whitey Ford and Tom Seaver. And against the two New York Aces, he hit 444. But hey... What else is new? Aaron famously batted 362 lifetime against Sandy Koufax and also hit over 300 against Steve Carlton and Nolan Ryan. Aaron also had eight career home runs off both Bob Gibson and Juan Marichal. And get this, 17 
against Don Drysdale. Out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. As we know, for 33 years, Hank Aaron held the record for most career home runs with a final total of 755. And he did this without ever hitting more than 47 home runs in a single season. But he was a model of consistent excellence, hitting 40 or more eight times and 39 on two other occasions. Now here's a head scratcher. How is it that one of the very greatest players of all time was his league's MVP only once? That's right, Henry Aaron took home the trophy only in 1957. And beyond that, he never finished second in the voting even once, although he was third six times. By way of comparison, contemporaries Roy Campanella and Yogi Berra won three MVP awards. So did Mickey Mantle, and Mickey finished second three times as well. Frank Robinson, Willie Mays, Ernie Banks, two MVPs apiece. But Henry Aaron, who belongs on baseball's Mount Rushmore, was his league's MVP only once. Yeah, quite a story. Uh, some of you may know that uh, Henry died uh, on January 21st last month, um, age 87, and he was a strong believer and uh, gave regular testimony of his faith in Christ. So he will be part of the resurrection. So we are uh, dealing today with the uh, omnipotent God. This is the, the God of all and total power. So you can uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 18, where we're going to be today. Uh, but before we get there, as we think about uh, the, the spring coming, I want to just briefly remind us of the snow that has been melting very rapidly this last week. And I, two weeks ago, I was talking about the love of God and the way that he individually treats us and uh, brings such specificity. I was blown away this week by this uh, magnified photograph of a snowflake. Take a look at the intricacy of the design of this snowflake. And imagine the billions and billions and billions of snowflakes that fell on our Hopefully you got some on your tongues and on your hands while it was happening. But this is, according to Job, chapter 26, this is just one of the minor things he does. Right? This is, this to me is one of those ways where his, his power is visible in big ways, in uh, black holes and dwarf stars and lots of things that are well beyond our comprehension. But taking a look at something like this and just reminds me of how powerful he is. From, from snowflakes to snowmen, from solar flares to seasons, right? Uh, and from uh, seraphim that we looked at last week to salvation, he is the great and awesome, omnipotent God. And what is uh, amazing is that uh, our Father and our Son and our Holy Spirit, they don't exercise their power in a vacuum. They haven't made the world and let it go. Uh, they have continued to be actively engaged in the creation. 
and revealing things to us. So today, I want to take the focus of not just understanding God's power, but also how he uses that power in interaction with his people. And uh, so the big idea for today is this. Our God has unlimited power and freedom to use that power so he can accomplish his will in the world and in our individual lives. And he can do that while giving us real self-determination and holding us accountable for all our choices. So I'm defining it that way, and you'll see as we go through uh, this passage, you'll see how it's not just the raw power that he possesses, but it's also his ability to govern and interact with his creation in ways that uh, allow us to have freedom and to be held responsible for our choices. It's a brilliant, omnipotent God that we have. So, uh, today's message is going to be in four parts. For the first 15 verses of Genesis 18, we're going to look at God's sovereign power amidst the choices that human beings are making. Then, in part two, we're going to look at how God actively invites us into his plans. And that'll be the next, uh, from verse 16 to 21. And then, the third part, I want to draw some lessons from the outcomes of this episode but to do that in a time-efficient fashion, I'm going to have to summarize the story for you from chapter 18, verse 22, till the end of chapter 19, which I will do in a few minutes. And we'll see some incredible lessons from this episode of Abraham and his nephew Lot. And then finally, I'm going to close with some theological affirmations because we are obviously in this series devoting ourselves to really understanding and uh, seeing our astonishing God as he is. And then um, some practical applications. And we will conclude our time together today uh, in worship and in communion. You'll be having an opportunity to take communion together. And so I encourage you as we go through the talk to prepare and to uh, get your soul and your, your spirit ready uh, for communion. So, with all that, let's dive in. I'm going to read uh, chapter 18, verses 1 to 15. The Word of God. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sias of the finest flour and knead it and make some bread. That's 36 pounds, uh, three sias. Then he ran <laughs> to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. 
While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? they asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. By the way, in the previous chapter, we find out that uh, Abraham is 99 and Sarah is 90. Um, so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. These are the very words of God. So quite an amazing story so far, and lots of power being demonstrated, but it's happening in the context of an interaction with Abraham and Sarah. And uh, let's take a look at what is going on here. First of all, uh, there's this God and two angels enter space and time from eternity, and they appear as human beings. It's, it's kind of like the Incredibles. They can just morph, take on human form, enter into time and space. And there's something in the story that lets you know that Abraham really knew who this was. He had interacted already with Yahweh several times. So he knew the, he knew the look. He knew uh, who was visiting with him. And he responds in this most hurried and excited and awestruck way. He is literally running around. He's giving orders. He's saying, quick, do this, quick, do that. And he's, pl he's putting out the massive hospitality to these uh, visiting men slash God slash angels. And we, we see in this picture that uh, they, they stoop. They got business to do, but they stoop to saying, okay, we'll have a meal. And, and the text says that they actually eat the meal. So we see now this scene, and imagine hurrying around, baking bread, slaughtering a calf, cooking it over the fire. It's got to take at least an hour. And he's literally running around, and they're just waiting for them, waiting for them to prepare whatever they're going to prepare, and they eat it. It kind of reminds me of uh, a time uh, this past summer when I was driving home. I was in a bit of a hurry. I had something to do when I got home, but when I got to the corner of a, of a street near me where I turned left, I saw this two young girls with a lemonade stand, and it said, lemonade, 50 cents. And I thought to myself, well, I got things to do, but I'm just going to stop. I stopped, parked my car, got out, went over there, and bought a lemonade for 50 cents. I wanted to encourage them. I didn't need the lemonade. I, you know, I certainly... Uh, it was fine. I had places to go, but something compelled me to 
encourage these young entrepreneurs. I think that's how God is sometimes. In this story right here, he is, he is way, way, way above what's going on here, but he knows how to enter in and minister to us individually. He knows how to uh, wield his power in ways that are so productive. He, he then confirms the promise that a 90-year-old woman is going to have a child, and he goes beyond that, and he says, it's exactly going to happen in the next year. So here, and this is a promise that was made to Abraham multiple times since chapter 12, and it's been refined each along the way. The promise has gotten sharper and clearer, and now, uh, after trying to have a baby through Hagar, we find out, no, God's going to do it through Sarah. And so um, she then, uh, she then uh, hears all this, and she laughs. She, she basically Isaacs. That's what the word, that's the word. She Isaacs. She Isaacs at God, and God calls her on it. And she said, no, I didn't laugh. And he said, oh, yeah, you, you Isaacs. I saw, I heard you, you Isaacs. And now, at that point, he could have done what he did with Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. He could have said, you're going to be, because you didn't believe me, you're going to be mute for a year. But he didn't. What he does instead is he's, he basically says, look, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, that is obviously the key verse of this whole passage, and that is the pointer to his omnipotence. But let's take a look at that uh, word, and it's in verse 14 is anything too hard for the Lord, is actually the very same word that we started this series with from Psalm 118, verse 23, which says, The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Same word. So we could translate Genesis 18, 14. We could say, Is anything too marvelous for the Lord? Is anything too amazing for the Lord? Is anything too incredible for the Lord? Is anything too stupendous for the Lord? Is anything too uh, astounding for the Lord? Is anything too astonishing for the Lord? This is who he is. This is his revelation of himself. And this is the, the Lord that we worship. The Lord that we're getting ready to worship. But it gets better. So let's move on to part two. Humans are invited into God's plan. Let me read uh, to verse 21. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom. By the way, they're in Mamre, which is near Hebron, which is up in the mountains. And you can get up there on, on, a, on, a, on a certain outcropping, and you can see Sodom and Gomorrah and all the towns of the uh, Jordan Rift Valley looking down there. It's a matter of maybe 10 or 15 miles and uh, you're looking down 3,000, 4,000 feet lower. So he says, uh, look down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, uh, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. That's what I've promised him. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. See the, con the covenant and the connection and the relationship between God's power and how he's delegating that power to Abraham? 
Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So here now, God overtly invites Abraham into it. He literally brings him, he brings Abraham into the global situation room. And he starts telling him what is going to happen. And Abraham gets it, and it's almost like God knows that Abraham is going to want to rescue Lot. Because he's already rescued Lot once, and uh, brought him back and all his stuff back as the war with the kings in Genesis 14. So, what do we see here? Well, first of all, we see that God chose Abraham and involved him in his plan. So this is the, the choice of a sovereign God to say uh, to any human being, hey, you, I've got a plan for you, follow me. And he does that uh, in relationship, and he does that out of his great love, but he also does that because he's working his plan. He's going to achieve what he's going to achieve. And that's the same for every single person who has said yes to Christ. Every single person who has uh, repented and turned and placed their faith in Christ, you can say, I've been chosen. Say it. Again. That's better. That's better. That's what's absolutely true about this. So he has brought us into his plan. That plan, among that plan, is the Great Commission to bring the gospel of the kingdom to people around us. And we are the plan. We are his friends, and we are his ambassadors. And there's no plan B. We are it, right? That's how he's brought us in. And so he gives us insight. He gives us the privilege of telling people about the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. He gives us the privilege of praying for people and watching them be healed. He gives us the privilege of looking at someone who's down and bringing them tidings of great joy. He gives us incredible authority, just as he does Abraham here, who is our father in the faith. He knows Abraham will be faithful to train godly kids. Now here I just want to speak to the parents of young kids. As God chose and trusted Abraham to bring him godly offspring, godly children, he also has chosen you and is trusting you and me to bring godly offspring. So what I want to say is no matter how difficult that task feels some days, his favor is on you. His favor is on you because he desires godly children. So we don't have to beg him that our kids will grow up godly. We want to affirm with him that that's his plan that they grow up godly. And we want to walk in that. We want to be carriers of that confidence. That's the, that's the message I have for our parents today. Do not get discouraged because you have favor to bring the kingdom of God and to bring godly offspring 
as an offering to your king. He will fulfill his covenant with Abraham. And by the way, <clears throat> he has done that in Jesus Christ fully. And he has, through Jesus, brought us in to that chosen faith. Those who will walk by faith. That is what he's done here. And he's done that through Christ. And he's seeing all of this. God is seeing all of this happening simultaneously. He's not, nothing in this is surprising him. He knows fully all of what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet, he's going to send his two angels down there to see and to have confirmation of what he already knows. But this is not for his benefit. This is for Abraham's benefit, and this is for Lot's benefit, and this is for our benefit as the people reading this story 4,000 years later. Isn't that amazing? Here we are. And he knows Abraham is going to try to save Lot, and he's going to listen. And uh, we're going to see here that Abraham is going to negotiate with God for the salvation of Lot. So that's part three. Let me finish this second part by simply saying the Father is committed to speaking with us. Jesus has committed himself that part of the abundant life is that we will hear his voice. And we are part of his plan, and we are his friends. Yes, we are in awe of his power, but we are his friends. We are his ambassadors. We are the ones that he is counting on to bring the message. In the Old Testament, there's a scripture in Amos chapter 3, verse 7. It says this, Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, that was a very specific office enjoyed by only a few people. But in the New Testament, we're all told to seek the gift of prophecy and that the purpose of that gift is to build one another up, to comfort one another, right, and to encourage one another. That's the purpose of it. So while that gift may have a different manifestation and a different execution in the New Testament, it is still there. God has obviously given his plan for the end of the world uh, from now till the end of the world, through the church, through the book of Revelation, we see it there. We know roughly what is going to happen. But also, we're told to seek and abide and listen, and that God will lead us, and we will hear his voice. And so this is the, this is the way he has decided to operate, and he still has limited himself, in a sense, to operate through people, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who have Jesus and the Father, uh, the adoption of the Father and the presence of Jesus to be his instruments in the world. His power is still being manifested in our weakness. That's still plan A. And so he is tr inviting us to trust and listen and encourage and edify and build one another up. That's just so encouraging that it's not just a shock and awe, which he can do shock and awe all the time, but it's also this intricate, brilliant plan to work through human agents, which brings me to part three. Now, this uh, 
episode of Abraham and Lot uh, runs through the end of chapter 19. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version of it, starting in chapter 18, verse 22. So Abraham does this long negotiation from 50 down to 10 people. And it's amazing to me. It's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, asking dad for the keys to the car. And then can I have it at four o'clock? Can I have it at five o'clock? How late can I stay out? Can I stay out till 11? Can I stay out till 11.15? Can I stay out till 11.30? So he goes through this long thing, but the entire negotiation is based on uh, the salvation of Lot and his family, but it's also, it's based on God's reputation. So let, let us learn something of how to pray. You know, we pray not as beggars, but we pray as sons and daughters of the king. So let me encourage you to begin praying as if you're part of the family business in the family boardroom. And let's hold God to his word. Let's hold God to his word. Let's do it humbly and respectfully, but let's not live this spiritual pauper lifestyle where we, we ultimately make God look like a, like a you know, chintzy, uh, uh, you know, Scrooge almost. No, 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 no. We want to pray into the things of God as people that understand the family business. That makes sense? Okay, so one of the things I'm going to ask you coming out of this is what new prayer are you going to pray with this information? Because this is how he wants us to pray. But then it goes on. Uh, Lot is sitting in the square. The angels come down. Lot insists on them staying with him in his house. They say, no, 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 we're going to stay in the square. Everything's fine. And he goes, no, 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 no. You've got to come to my house. So they change their mind. They say, okay, we'll come with you. And uh, then they get in the house, and all the townsmen come around. And they, they are vicious, and they want to attack these men sexually. They want to have these angels. And Lot out of sheer desperation goes out and tries to talk to them and they say what do you mean you're a foreigner here you're trying to be a judge among us well yes lot probably was a judge because he was sitting at the gate that's where the judges and elders of the cities would sit and now they're rebelling against lot who's a godly man but he's now inundated and getting worn out with the ways of sodom and gomorrah so he says, hey, look, guys, I'll give you my daughters. An insane offer, a desperate offer, a sinful offer. And the angels recognize he's in trouble, so they reach out from the door, grab him inside, close the door, and they make all the men of the city blind. That's a lot of power. That's a lot of power right there. And so they're blind walking around. Now, he says... The angels then take over, and they say, okay, do you have any other family here? And Lot says, yeah, my daughters are engaged to be married. I got a couple of son-in-law, future son-in-laws. All right, go get him and tell him. Lot goes and tells him, and they think he's joking. They dismiss him. 
So it makes you wonder what kind of a spiritual connection did Lot have with these two son-in-laws? Were any of them thinking that God would ever get angry with the sinfulness of this city? And so there's a miss. And Lot himself hesitates. He hesitates, and so uh, does his wife. And so the angels basically grab them and take them to safety. Lot, his wife, and the two daughters. And they, they on the way, they're negotiating. Look, we, we can't, it's too far where you want us to go. Can we just go to Zoar, that little town over there? That would be good. So the angels again revise their plan, and instead of destroying all the cities of the plain, of which one of them was Zoar, they say, okay, we'll relent, we'll let you have Zoar. So they, they just say to them, look, go and don't look back. Now, I think that is not necessarily a warning to, hey, don't get caught up with the spectacle, because everybody likes a good fireworks show. I, th I, think what, I think what they're saying to the, the Lot and his family is, look, leave Sodom behind. I don't know if she's worrying about her pots and pans, if he's worrying about his money, if they've got animals there, but they are being told, forget about that. Just go. Run for your lives. And don't look back. Well, of course, Lot's wife looks back. And immediately she loses her life. She's turned into a pillar of salt. So imagine Ozzy here running around this auditorium and all of a sudden when he wasn't supposed to and all of a sudden and he's just a pillar of salt crazy that's a lot of power that's a lot of power there and so um, and then we see uh, we see then that Lot is totally afraid and he moves out of Zoar into a cave and he's living in a cave with his daughters and they begin to panic, and they're going to take life into their own hands because they want husbands, and they don't know, maybe, if the whole world has been destroyed like this, but it doesn't sound like they're really plugged in, but they, they, they think, we're never going to get married here, and they take life into their own hands. And then, of course, through the sin of incest, we have the Ammon, the Ammonites, and we also have the Moabites who come out of this cave. So in a sense, the daughters basically recreate Sodom inside the cave. And they take things into their hands. And the story ends, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a real challenge because we see this mess has been made and all this stuff that is now uh, happening. So that's the 20-minute sorry it would take 20 minutes to read that's the five minute summary of the 20 minutes so by the way you know you're leaving Sodom and Gomorrah you're, leave, you're leaving all your possessions you know I think the Lord is telling us don't be that guy who was on the Titanic who went back to his room to get his money and his jewels and then missed the boat and went down with the Titanic this world is the Titanic this world is the Titanic. And if you cling to it, you will go down hard. Jesus interprets this story exactly 
this way. He says this, It was the same in the days of Lot, Luke 17, verse 28 and following. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is in the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. The lesson, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. The key message of Abraham and Lot is lose your old life to get the life God wants to give you. And this is power. As, as God brings all of his power to bear for us to see that one lesson. That's goodness, guys. That's greatness. He's not just showing off. He is bringing us. So Lot, to some degree, hesitated. Part of his heart was in Sodom. Lot's wife's heart was in Sodom. And the girls' hearts were in Sodom. Do not get wrapped up in this world's comforts and pleasures. It will kill you. And God has the power to lift us out of that. So let's look at the lessons from the outcomes of that episode. First of all, God is moved by our prayers as he does his will. We don't know the equation. Not every prayer I pray is answered the way I would like it to be answered. But it, there's always an answer. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, sometimes it's wait. But there's always an answer to, to our prayers. God has created an economy of prayer. He's moved by our prayers. It's like a dad who will be wrestling with his son and occasionally he will let him win. My guys don't let me win anymore. It's done. But occasionally they will let him win. And that is the, that is the, 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 the methodology, that is the heart of our father. God applies his power even when we are unwise. Lot offers his daughters, and the angels bring blindness instead. Uh, a, much, a much better use of the authority than the, what Lot had come up with. He calls us to lose our Sodom and find his life. He remembers and acts on our prayers. Verse 29 so when God destroyed the cities of the plain, chapter 19, verse 29. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. Do not get tired of praying because God has given you the opportunity to tap into his power by praying in accordance with his purposes and his will. And one of the best parts of prayer in, in prayer life is that we gradually shift our prayer life into the things we know God wants done. So praying for his glory to be revealed, that's what he wants. Praying for his son to be honored, that's what he wants. Praying for the fullness of the Holy Spirit in each of us, that's what he wants. And bringing that agenda. And finally, he allows evil choices, but he uses them for good. There is consequences to our evil choices. But in this case, the girls got themselves pregnant with their dad. Then 
they had these two sons, Ammon and, and Moab. These became the Ammonites and the Moabites who were constant, perennial enemies of Israel, making life miserable for those in Israel. But God reaches in to the Moabite people with all of the sin and the history and all the adversity that they brought on Israel and plucks out Ruth, the Moabite, and makes her the great-grandmother of King David and the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great 28 generations worth grandmother of Jesus, his Messiah. This is how he turns things into advantage for the pursuing of his will. One other story just to encourage you, especially uh, parents, as you seek to shape spiritual champions, just remember that God's will for them is to be full participants in the kingdom of God. I remember the story of Beth Ewing, who became Beth Guckenberger. But Beth Ewing, when she was 13 years old, collected clothes for orphans in Mexico. And she brought her dad five big boxes of clothes. And she said, Dad, we need to mail this to Mexico. And he could have given her a hundred reasons why that was a dumb idea, but he didn't. He paid the whatever it was, $485 to send these five boxes of clothing to an orphanage in Mexico. And that was his way of stooping, if you will, to something impractical to, to feed the vision that his daughter had for caring for orphans. And that is now back-to-back -back ministries operating in six countries, serving hundreds of thousands of orphans, and being uh, one of those great stories of God. That is, uh, that is the heart of our Father. That's how he wants us to use our power, to use his power. So part, part four, let's talk a little bit of theology and application. So let me start by affirming that the general and the specific and detailed sovereignty of God, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience is total. And we see it here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He sustains all things. That's things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible, powers, authorities. Everything is being sustained and held together by his word. This is an agreement with Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. So nothing is unknown to him. He doesn't have new, new info, and nothing is outside of his power and his ability to influence. Tozer discusses what this means for man's freedom to make choices. Tozer says this, God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice, and man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, he does not thereby countervail the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it, inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice the man should make, but that he should be free to make it. Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. 
in the famous story of Pinocchio, it doesn't work until the puppet strings are cut. And he's left to make decisions on his own. So God's sovereignty includes the ability to save the righteous, punish the unjust, and accomplish all his purposes. This is how Peter uh, talks about it. We have that next slide. Peter in Second uh, Peter 2 says this, If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is, this is what we must affirm about him. So let me put it this way. God wants us to trust him, obey him, and engage with him. He knows everything, yet he holds us responsible for our choices. He allows evil without being responsible for it. He influences us without removing our responsibility for our actions. And he uses evil choices to bring about, even evil choices, to bring about his purposes. This is what is known as the theology of the providence of God. What that means is, is that God is intimately involved in his creation. His power is not exercised in a vacuum, but it is exercised in the context of his creation. Now that's different. Providence is different than deism. Deism, many of our country's founders were deists. They essentially believed that God created everything, the watchmaker, so to speak, and then let it go, and he's no longer involved in his creation. The opposite of that is, or the other extreme of that, is pantheism, which is his creation is him. And that's also an error. That's not right. Jamie covered that earlier in the series. But also, providence means that it is not fate. Things don't happen by fate. We are not this... Uh, this fatalistic people. And it's not chance either. There's no such thing as chance in the providence of God. So I want us to see that because if we see that, we will recognize that he is omnipotent and he has a plan and he has involved us in that plan. And he has made us free agents. Now, I, I hesitate to use the word free will because it's hard to define. But Augustine said reasonable self-determination. Reasonable self-determination means if you look back on your life and the big decisions you've been involved in, you can look back on those, and unless you were suffering mental illness or uh, substance abuse or some other thing, you can look back on those choices and say, I made those choices freely. Those are my choices. And that's, that's the amazing reality of the God of the Bible and the providence that he involves us and he tells us we have the mind of Christ. So we're able to be in that. So 
That still leaves us with two biblical mysteries. Almost all theologians agree on this. And the two biblical mysteries are this. <clears throat> and by the way, um, well, let me say them. First of all, the scriptures do not explain how the all-powerful soul creator allowed evil without being responsible for it. Because obviously at some level, if it exists, and he's the only creator, but there's, he's not responsible for evil. So that's a mystery. No one knows the answer to that question, and the Bible does not talk about it. Secondly, the scriptures do not reveal how God can influence us without negating our self-determination and responsibility. It doesn't, it doesn't explain. All I know is that my wife prayed for me to come into the kingdom of God for four years. And I showed up at a retreat 25 years ago in a couple of weeks. And I saw the living God and my heart moved towards him. I did that freely. But months before that, I was in no such place. I was rejecting God. So somehow through Marianne's prayers, the prayers of others, and the action of God, my heart shifted. Do I believe that I made a decision to follow Christ wholeheartedly, freely? Yes. That's, that's the mystery of that. Now this should increase, these two unanswered questions, should increase our admiration for God. Because it puts a whole nother level of power on his omnipotence because he's able to do things and yet uh, hold us accountable. This is a paradox. These are seemingly contradictory statements, but they are nevertheless true. The Bible affirms that these things are true. So, uh, in other words, is anything too astonishing for the Lord. Now, now we should be moved in very, very powerful ways. And so the worship team is going to come up. We're going to prepare ourselves for communion. And I want to wrap up with some very practical next steps. First of all, <clears throat> trust God's ability to fulfill his purposes for your life. Do not worry. Trust God. He has this. Whatever challenge you're facing, if it feels overwhelming, then slow down. Listen. Fast. Be quiet. But let God speak into your situation. Jesus has this. Secondly, seek intimacy and friendship with God by engaging him. That's the invitation of the whole story of the Bible. Not only Abraham and Lot, but every single person. Engage with him. Jamie's book will be a great resource for you to do that. Confess sin eagerly because he forgives quickly and fully. Do not love the world. If any part of Lot's story touched your spirit today, just confess that. Confess that to him. Turn it over to him. Turn from that. Turn from your worry. And turn to the, to the king of kings. And when you come for communion, we're going to be doing three worship songs. When you come for communion, just 
receive forgiveness for your sin because his body and his blood paid the price for your sin. Pray with confidence, believing that God hears and acts, and let's start praying the kind of bold prayers that feed into the reputation and the power of our God. And then finally, celebrate the beautiful truth that God died to set us free. Here is the all-powerful God, and he used his power to save you and me. He used his power for that. So let me pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus used his power, and so did you, Father, and Holy Spirit, to redeem us from the self-defeating, cursed life of living by our own effort and our own standards and our own view of religious performance. (coughs) Thank you, Lord that you just absorbed all our self-centered sinfulness into yourself and you let it all be nailed to the cross that you allowed your body to be destroyed and your blood to be spilled to wash away our sin and curse and shame and now by faith we can stop trying to be good and let your perfect life live in us as sons and daughters. That is good news. That is good news, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. So, Lord, now we ask you to examine us. We confess our need, Lord, to share in the body and blood of Jesus Christ by faith. Thank you for this indescribable gift, Lord. You know us, Lord. Open our eyes. Light our hearts on fire, Lord. We want to give you praise and honor and glory. You are the omnipotent one. Thank you. Thank you. We are going to worship the Lord now, and um, when you're ready, come and take communion during the worship time. At home, um, as you worship, please take communion, share communion. Let's lift our hearts to the one who's worthy of all our praise. Done great things, and you are doing great things. Father, we thank you for the work that you have done in our lives. We acknowledge your goodness. We acknowledge your greatness. We acknowledge your omnipotence. Lord, uh, I, for one, want to just just thank you for the forgiveness that I just experienced at the table in uh, the times when I don't trust your timing. I'm impatient, and you're not. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. We give you all the praise and all the glory and all the power and all the authority.
small group leaders, uh, you've got questions, um, and if you're uh, here and you're not in a small group, I encourage you to touch base with Jamie and get plugged into a small group. But here's some questions uh, to think about regarding uh, our text this morning and uh, the message that we've shared. And uh, our benediction today is going to be uh, out of Jude 24 and 25. And this is such a great passage to remind us that he is able to keep us from stumbling and to bring us home. Uh, and for that, he gets all the glory. So let's pray this over each other. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen. Have an awesome week.